Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. During the 2016 presidential campaign, there has been a lot of talk about trade. Almost all of it is focused on products made in other countries and imported to the United States. What don't get as much attention are exports. The Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development has been staging an event the past 10 days to open some foreign markets for Pennsylvania exports. It's called Bringing the World to Pennsylvania. To tell us about that and exports coming from Pennsylvania is Joseph Burke, who is Deputy Secretary of DCED, the Office of International Business Development. Mr. Burke, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Also joining us, Jennifer Black, Executive Director, Export Development. DCED, Office of International Business Development. Ms. Black, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or comment about exports from Pennsylvania, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I'll also go as far as saying, if you're a business owner out there, you have a product that you would like to export, you just don't know how, maybe this is a good time to call and ask that question because it would be a lesson for a lot of people. As I mentioned in the introduction, there has been so much talk about trade during this presidential campaign. And I'm not going to ask the two of you to talk about politics because I know you can't and you probably (laughs) won't anyway. But as I said, almost all the attention has been focused on imports into the United States. Mm -hmm. Exports have not gotten as much attention. So let's talk about exports from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one of the nation's leading export states, isn't it? Yes. yes, it is. Okay. So I need more than a yes it is. <laughs> sure. How much, the, uh, <laughs> how much of it is? We're, we're actually quite proud. We're the, uh, the sixth largest economy in the United States and the 19th most important economy in the world. Uh, exports are a, a main driver of, of the economy. And um, we, for the past maybe 20 years or so, we've had a, um, a real uh, push on exporting and opening up offices around the world, bringing our representatives to Pennsylvania and helping Pennsylvania businesses grow through exporting. See, now there's a number that may surprise a lot of people, and it's something to be proud of, that this state is the 19th largest economy right. in the world? Right. If you if you don't take into account some of our competitor states like New York, California, et cetera, if you rank us against other countries, uh, we're very competitive. We're on par with Saudi Arabia. I believe we're larger than Switzerland. Uh, so, you know, there you've got China, you've got the UK, et cetera, but you've got many company, uh, countries there that would love to have the kind of uh, export potential, sorry, the, the robust economy and industry that we have here. We're on par with Saudi Arabia. Again, that probably would surprise a lot of people because most people think of oil and how much oil is worth being exported from, from Saudi Arabia. All right, what are some of the products that we export from Pennsylvania? I can take this one. So last year, Pennsylvania companies exported $39.4 billion worth of products to companies all around the world. Um, Those products include chemicals, transportation equipment, food, um, cosmetics. We work with companies across across industries. I don't think it'd be a surprise to anyone that Canada is the number one market for Pennsylvania goods. Um, It's relatively close. You know, friendly neighbor, um, Mexico as well, the United Kingdom, China, uh, Japan, all top the the list of destinations for Pennsylvania-made products. You know, and again, I'm 
these questions just pop into my head as, as you're mentioning. But uh, when I think of Canada uh, and how close Canada is across Lake Erie, um, not only is Canada one of the friendliest nations to the United States and a, a real partner in a lot of different ways, but I imagine transportation costs have a whole lot to do with that as well. Sure, especially for companies from this region in industrial equipment, large heavy things need to go by road. Um, Canada is a great first market for companies that haven't exported before. Mm. Uh, if I could also interrupt, sure. uh, just to let you know, there we also have a free trade agreement with Canada. Um, so the the tariffs are either zero or very small. Same thing with, with Mexico. So that's part of the North American Free Trade Agreement that's been in effect for 20 or more years. So we see that is has been a big driver in well, Canada is so close, or a natural partner, but this adds to it. When you say we have a free trade agreement, are you the talking US. about the United States? Or the United States does. See, and that brings up another question. It seems as though when we're talking about importing goods from other countries, we're talking about it being done on a national scale. But when we're talking about exports, it can be done on a state-by-state -state basis. Mm -hmm. How does that work? I mean, how does, when, you know, obviously when p most people think of free trade, they think of U.S. We've heard so much about it. Mm -hmm. What? How does it occur on a state-by-state -state basis? Well, we have to follow all the federal guidelines, we, the harmonized code and tariffs, and I mean, we, we follow the, the federal regulations. But we can track what comes from Pennsylvania, or what originates in Pennsylvania, and it's sold to Canada. Uh, and that's through the U.S. government, the census. When something cross, crosses the border, there's a harmonized code that's attached to it, and the government can track what travels back and forth. Same with Mexico? Same with any country. Oh, okay, okay. Harmonized code, what is that? It's, it's what, um, it's very simply, if you look at the chair that you're sitting on, uh, that will, let's say, have a four-digit code for chairs. But then if you say red chairs that swivel, that have a, uh, with an armrest. Then you go to six to eight, or six to eight, uh, I think that's as far as it goes, but it can get, so we can track, uh, because they, some countries want to, won't charge you for a chair, but they will charge you extra with one that has wheels on it. So the Harmonized Code is an international coding system uh, to designate a product. Wow. They charge us more for a red... They may, red, or no, they no, may not. I know. I know you're only giving an example, but I, w I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, hey, you know, I'd want... Well, it's a little more specialized, it so is, they're going to charge is. you more for it. <laughs> you, you mentioned, uh, Jen, uh, chemicals. Uh, what kind of chemicals are we talking about? Because I see often when I'm reading about Pennsylvania exports, pharmaceuticals, is that... Does that come under the chemical heading? That's a separate heading. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, okay. So in, in this region, it's mostly industrial chemicals. Um, these can be used in pharmaceutical manufacturing, for example. Um, but when I say that chemicals are one of our leading exports, that's the, the chemicals themselves. Mm. Um, pharmaceuticals are a separate product category. Um, Pennsylvania has a large number of big pharmaceutical companies, so we do have data on those exports. We also kind of in that same industry have a really robust uh, number of medical device companies across the state. Yeah, that was, you know, again, and again, I'm not asking to comment on politics, but I know that either Senators Casey and Toomey, for example, were fighting part of the Affordable Care Act a few years ago was to put a tax on medical devices, and that uh, our two U.S. senators were fighting to 
do something about that to reduce it or eliminate it because mm-hmm. it is such a big industry in Pennsylvania. Can we put a dollar figure on exports from Pennsylvania? $39.4 billion last year alone. Okay. Is that is there any kind of trend there? Is that going up, flat, or just what? It has been going up for the last few years. Um, I think we have seen sort of a downturn in economics globally. Um, so I think this number may be down slightly from, from the past, but the j- trajectory for Pennsylvania has, has remained pretty strong upward trend. How about uh, jobs? Do we, can we attach a job figure to uh, that $39.4 billion? So Pennsylvania doesn't collect job figures or at- attach job numbers to trade, um, but the federal government has tried. Other groups have tried. Um, Reports are that about one in five Pennsylvania jobs depends on international trade, imports and exports. That's a, that's a lot of jobs. That's twenty percent. Yeah, yeah, good math. Yeah, <laughs> I practiced before. I'm, I got I'm, here. I'm glad you, I'm glad you're in DCED. We know that the math is that good. <laughs> By the way, if you have a question or a comment, one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. Joseph Burke, who is the Deputy Secretary, DCED Office of International Business Development. Jennifer Black, Executive Director, Export Development, DCED Office of International Business Development. We're talking about exports from Pennsylvania. One eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two is the number to call. And again, I. I'm not going to get into into politics, but, uh, you know, one of the issues in the presidential and even into some of the other political campaigns this year is about trade and whether there should be more barriers put up or, uh, you know, the TPP, uh, NAFTA, whether, you know, we should make some adjustments to it. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about exports, and again, most of that has to do with imports, if there would be more barriers put up on trade into the United States, could that have a detrimental effect on exports to other countries? Well, I think the important thing to say is that we can't turn the clock back. The uh, exports, imports, we live in a global economy. It's just the way it is. Um, so, um, you know, the, it, uh, trade policy is, 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 is clearly very important with uh, TTIP and uh, all the other uh, trade agreements. And there's more implications than just trade that goes into global geopolitics, the whole bit. The point is, is that we're moving forward. The rest of the world is globalizing. Um, the rest of the world are making some pretty good products. You know, we, we sell them products. They send it back in different form, value-added. Um, you know, we need to be in the game. So that's what Pennsylvania is doing is we're looking at, we're saying we need to be in the game. So we have our, our foreign uh, representatives that, that advocate for us and help our companies uh, in their particular countries. And so Pennsylvania is taking the stance that, you know, we want to be global and we want to sell our products globally. But let me get back to my original question. I'll hand it over to Jen if it's too political. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm, I'm just asking, if is there the possibility that Pennsylvania exports could be harmed if we did roll back some of those things? And I understand what I, I you're saying. The, I think the, the answer uh, is very likely yes. Um, the Again, we will live in a global economy. It's tit for tat. Uh, you have political leaders that say... Um, you know, if you do this, we'll. I mean, history says it. Right, if we look right. at, you know, in the There's in the nineteen hundred repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yes, there there likely would be, but um, you know, hopefully we. Um, We'll just keep moving forward. Let's put it that way. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
We're talking about exports from Pennsylvania. Our guest today, Joseph Burke, who was a deputy secretary of DCD. Jennifer Black, executive director, export development with DCD, both with the Office of International Business Development. We welcome your phone calls and emails. Phone calls, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a phone call from Brandon in Likens. Brandon, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. All right. Um, well, first, thank you for uh, giving me a chance to voice my opinion. Sure. So um, we do. A few years ago, I had worked at a recycle uh, facility in Harrisburg, and um, I was there for, for a period of time. The company was bought out by a, a, Chinese, a group of Chinese people. Um, they, they kind of went in there and made some changes, got rid of some people, and uh, they're basically sending all the product that they get from us over to China. Um, in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, but they take our metals, they thin it out, make it have added impurities to it, and then they sell it back to us in the form of product. Um, so, I mean, exporting is good in a lot of ways for Pennsylvania, but it can also hurt the economy overall. So you're saying that you think that uh, what the Chinese are doing with that uh, scrap metal is something that could be done here in the United States? Not, not, not just that. Yes, that definitely that, but, but also a better quality metal. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, I don't know if you ever deal with certain metal. Uh, it's very brittle if there's too many impurities added to it, uh, especially um, cast aluminum, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for your call. I saw that metals, that actually certain type of metals is one of our uh, biggest exports. Mm-hmm. Do you have a response or anything you'd like to say about what uh, Brandon well, has I to say? I think I could quickly respond. I understand what he's saying because, uh, you know, we have seen that, you know, uh, there's always a fear that if a, a foreign company comes in, buys it, they're going to be, you know, buys the company, they're going to be taking the product and letting the people go. That gets into, a, like, I think, more of a federal issue. Um, uh, I had worked before in a previous career many years ago for a law firm while I was in grad school, and that's one of the things that they, they worked on. But it, do, it is a federal issue. You have um, – that's when these Harmonite codes are very important, and the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce and the ITA have remedies for that. That doesn't take care of a displaced worker at that time, but it does um, – we do have safeguards on displaced, a federal level. meaning here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, if you lose your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, and there really are no safeguards there against it? Is that what you're saying? You mean – no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if, if a, um, a Chinese company hypothetically purchased the metals, uh, let's say in quotes, did a value add, but sent it back as a uh, 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 with a different description, oh, so okay. not accurate, okay. Okay. there are federal remedies for that. Okay. We have an email here from uh, Laura in Lewisburg. Now, she's talking about exporting to another state, and then she has a, a question about the exporting to China as well. What did you know? Um, I don't know if you can answer this about the, the other state. It says, how much oil and natural gas are we exporting to New York State, who said no to fracking in their own state? 
How is that being hauled, moved each step of the way? And the second question, how much Pennsylvania coal is being exported to China in what form? Is it all originating from Pennsylvania coal mines? How has it moved? Are you able to answer those questions? Uh, I wouldn't uh, be the expert on that. Um, I would say that, um, you know, Pennsylvania is uh, in many many ways blessed with uh, our energy resources, whether it's uh, underground or, you know, the movement towards... uh, uh, environmental friendly energy. So uh, what's going up to New York? Um, I don't know. And we in our office wouldn't count that as an export. Yeah, because you're international. Right, exactly. But, right. Uh, let's talk about uh, the event itself and uh, some of what you're trying to do at the DCED. DCED the, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, it's called Bringing the World to Pennsylvania. This is not uh, anything new. It actually has been around for some time now. But uh, what's the idea behind Bringing the World to Pennsylvania? So the Bringing the World to Pennsylvania tour is a two-week tour that's hosted by our office in partnership with local organizations across the state where we bring Pennsylvania's international trade representatives here and we take them around to 10 different locations statewide to meet one-on-one with our Pennsylvania businesses Mm -hmm. to talk about international sales opportunities in the markets they cover, um, how to best find a partner, agent, distributor. They really get into um, a dialogue about how how we can support those companies in those markets. Mm -hmm. So this year's tour started last Monday in State College, and... uh, we were in State College, in Johnstown, Pittsburgh, Erie, up in St. Mary's. On Monday, we were in Harrisburg, and yesterday and today, the, t- the group is in Philadelphia. St. Mary's? Yeah, St. Mary's. Small, it's such a small town. Why St. Mary's? Well, <laughs> don't tell me this is It's export. the largest town in that area. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. In, El- that. in Elk County, yeah. Uh, I guess he wanted to go into the northern tier. Uh, actually, we don't go into Northern Tier We didn't tier quite anymore. make it into Northern Tier this year, but... Elk uh, County isn't counted as Northern Tier? No, that's North Central. Oh, is it? Okay. Northern we think of Tawanda as uh, Northern Tier. They, they, the companies that are in that area uh, will travel down to some of the local um, spots and meet with the reps. Curious, what uh, exports do you get from that area? Tawanda, a lot of lumber. Lots of lumber, lots of hardwoods. St- in fact, wood products mm-hmm. are, are a major um, export product for Pennsylvania in certain regions of the state, including up in in St. Mary's. Right. Um, I interrupt. I think, I'm but I think that's too, a, a point also about. that you know companies in all different industries have international sales opportunities. Um, in, you're right. Up in Bradford, you wonder, but there are some really high tech, really you know, mm. excellent, strong companies. Um, that that can find those international opportunities as well, and mm-hmm. and that's what we're here to do, is sort of bring those tools and that training to them locally, um, to help them realize those those international sales. I, I the only reason I brought up the same word because it's mm-hmm. just it when we think of international trade, it's not yeah. one of those things that. Oh, but, but it's it, happening. I was going to say it's right. it's, it's a great thing that mm-hmm. reaching into some of the less populated rural areas of Pennsylvania. Uh, so you called it a tour, mm-hmm. and as you just described, Jen, it uh, you know it is in several locations uh, mm-hmm. throughout the state. What are some of the questions that businesses typically ask? Because it is unusual, I would think, that they would have an opportunity, especially for smaller businesses, uh, to talk with an international trade representative from another country. Yeah, it's definitely a unique opportunity for companies now. 
before I get into it, I want, just want to point out that our services and those of our offices are available to companies all year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during this tour, it is really a unique opportunity. We're bringing all these representatives from all over the world in one location. So companies have the opportunity to meet with our representative covering the Netherlands and also India and um, you know maybe Southeast Asia all in one place. The topics vary, certainly based on the experience level of the company, but companies want to know, is there a market for my product in Singapore, in India, in Canada? Um, Is there local competition there? And and if there is, who is it? What do I need to know uh, to make my product stand out? Um, We help companies structure their entry into the market. Sometimes the way a company organizes their, um, their business here in the States It'd be helpful if they shifted that a little bit into international markets, so we'll talk with them about what what those options might be. Um, I think certainly a big issue for many companies is also compliance regulations. What do I need? Do I need to modify my product in any way to export it to to another market? So this this tour and these meetings are an opportunity for companies to really start that dialogue with our representatives. Um, And then once everyone's back in the office, we really start getting into providing that custom assistance. We, we want to meet companies where they are, provide them with information that's really relevant to them. Um, so this is just sort of the first step in what we hope is a long-term dialogue. Mm-hmm. You have some examples of success stories, uh, even some local companies that uh, have hooked up with uh, other countries and are able to export their products. What are some of those success stories? I brought a few with me. Um, we. Our local partner for this region is the World Trade Center Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. They're in their 25th year. Um, they do. Uh, we happy have a, anniversary. Yes, happy anniversary. Um, they, they're an excellent partner, and we actually reached out to them to to gather some some stories from some of their client companies and companies that have worked also with our program. Um, a couple that I wanted to highlight. Uh, one is the Bystel Company in Shippensburg. So they're the largest and oldest manufacturer of decorations and party goods in the U.S. Uh, and they're doing really? some. I didn't know that. Yeah, and they're they're doing some great business. So they offer seasonal decorations and party supplies. Um, and over the last couple of years, they've really tried to grow their their export business. And I think their story is an example of the importance of getting to the market. Like go there, go global. Literally get on the plane and go. Um, their prospecting for new accounts included a trip to Australia. Um, they also did a trade show in Germany. And sort of as a result of getting to the market and seeing um, seeing the markets and talking to people, they've modified their products a little bit. They feel like this diverse product portfolio really gives them a competitive advantage, um, and they're they're building and doing some custom stuff that they that they hadn't thought of. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I mean, just a a supplier of of party goods in all these other countries yeah. that are looking for. They probably point out in those other countries. Those are from America. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Anyway, what are some of the other success stories? Um, there's also a company from York called MRG Labs. Um, this, I think, also shows sort of the diverse uh, of the base here in this region. Um, this company has developed a device called the Grease Thief. It's a patented device that allows for you to sample grease from lubricants and industrial equipment. So this is important because you need to make sure your equipment is running well and hmm. the lubricants are a big part of that. So they've got this um, this device, very easy to use proprietary device, um, and they're reaching new customers through trade shows, 
doing webinars, um, participating in standards development worldwide. Um, and they really feel like going to an international trade show is a great platform for them to um, spread their message to uh, to new customers. Um, and they're doing business all over the world, including in France, Denmark, hmm. uh, as well as Mongolia. Mongolia, <laughs> not one I would have uh, guessed. But well, th- thanks for the examples. Mm-hmm. That just goes to show that uh, even here in Central Pennsylvania, that we do have some export successes. You know, when we think of trade, it is a two-way street. Um, what about international investment in Pennsylvania? Uh, your, does your office work with that and? Maybe some examples of, of other countries that have invested here in Pennsylvania. Sure. Yeah, I can field that one. Um, could I just back up for just a second? Sure. I think it's important that we also know that um, we have our international representatives, but we also work with representatives or um, contractors here within the state that also make this possible. So, for, for instance, in this region, uh, we work with the World Trade Center of uh, South Central Pennsylvania. Um, so they're, they have a World Trade Center now that they're opening up in, in Harrisburg, in fact. So we, we don't do it solely as an office. We work with partners around the state okay. and around the world. So it's, 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 it's a fairly unique system. Mm-hmm. So our office is, um, has primarily two focuses or foci. One is uh, the trade side and the other side is the investment side. Uh, we also have international reps there, and their job is to um, um, find companies that are interested in investing in the United States and then making it happen here in Pennsylvania. And then we have a group of professionals that uh, work with economic development people here, show them sites, we do research for them, we uh, you know, introduce them to the people that they need to know, accountants, bankers, et cetera, to make their, their landing here in the United States and hopefully in Pennsylvania in the uh, the right thing for them. So one of the com- uh, companies that we had worked with uh, not too long ago is a company called uh, Ecosave. And they work with, they're an Australian company. What's interesting about this company is, not to get too long-winded, is the owner of the company is actually Argentinian, who emigrated at 14 with his family to Australia, um, had a high school education, joined the Australian Army, um, with, and with no college background, started this, this company. He penetrated uh, and saturated the market in Australia and has brought his technology here. Basically what he does, or his company does, uh, is they sort of retrofit older buildings and make them energy efficient. Mm. So they've hired, I think they started with about 25 um, employees and they've grown since. So that's kind of like an, an example of of, uh, of of the kind of companies that we, we bring here. A lot of entrepreneurs uh, and a lot of companies that are very aware that this is the market that, that they need to be in. What are the advantages to Pennsylvania that uh, you discuss with uh, these potential investors? Uh, most of it centers around location. Um, we're in the right spot. We're a day's drive away from uh, you know Canada, 60% of the uh, U.S. population, 40% of the purchasing power in Canada. Uh, we've got a great system here of transportation. We've got an educated work and ready-to-work workforce. Um, we're not as expensive as many as our competitors. Uh, some of our competitors have incentives that we don't have, but we're still able to compete with them because of of who we are and where we're located. Let's take a, one quick phone call here from John in York. John, you're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. About 20-some years ago, I'm still in the refrigerated trucking business, but I worked for a trucking company out of uh, Utah. And we were contracted by a local Pennsylvania Christmas tree grower 
of all, 10 loaves of Christmas trees down to Mexico City. It was the first time Pennsylvania trees have been sold outside the country. Mm-hmm. Or, I shouldn't say outside the country, but the first time they've been sold in Mexico. Up until then, the only trees that allowed into Mexico came out of the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. The Department of Agriculture here in the state got behind my friend's operation. Uh, they helped him, you know, go through all the loops. Hey, John, I have to ask you to be a little bit quicker because I'm almost okay, out of time. I'll, I'll do it real quick here. Well, what happened was we got to the border. Two, tree, two loads of trees went across the border. The other eight were refused because they didn't need them. And my friend tried to get help from the Department of Agriculture uh, here in the state and got absolutely none after the fact. And we wound up having to sell the trees off the back of our trucks throughout the state of Texas. It took us about two weeks to get rid of all the damn Christmas trees. Uh, so I guess it's just a cautionary tale for all the things that can go right, things that can go wrong, and the fact that we really didn't get any help in the state after the fact. All right. Thank you very much for your call. What about that? Uh, I, re- I do remember that. Really? Uh, what happened? The, the Something about – I don't have all my facts. Right. But it had right. something to do with uh, uh, the buyer on the Mexican side. Um, and I don't recall all the facts. I do remember that the Department of Agriculture worked on it. But the good news is that, um, you know, that I think things have been changing and we we have a representative in Mexico that can that can help with that, with those uh, sort of um, issues. And and part of what we try to do is we try to vet the buyer before they cross the border. Mm -hmm. So I think we've become a little more sophisticated since that time. 20 years ago. That was. Yeah. But but people remember that. And and, you know, I'm sorry for what happened, but. I think we've moved on. One final that. question. Uh, the event Bringing the World to Pennsylvania runs through uh, the rest of the week. What, what other events are scheduled? Well, we'll be thir- today uh, in Philadelphia, Thursday in the Lehigh Valley, and Friday in Wilkes-Barre. And that'll wrap up, that'll wrap up the tour for this year. Uh, we hope to make it an annual event and do it again next September. If uh, there are businesses out there, should they contact your office? They the can. Businesses that would like to participate? Yes, they can certainly uh, look at our department's website. That's dced.pa.gov, um, and there they'll find information on all of our business assistance programs, including information about the tour. Deputy Secretary Joseph Burke, DCED, and Jennifer Black, Executive Director, Export Development, DCED, Office of International Business Development. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. In 2007, the Pennsylvania Turnpike had a surplus of $1.76 billion. At the same time, then-Governor Ed Rendell supported the idea of leasing the Turnpike to a private operator. Then came Act 44, legislation that Turnpike Commission officials went along with that would take money generated from tolls on the Turnpike to pay for public transit in Pennsylvania. That payment amounts to $450 million a year. A recent audit by Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale found that surplus has now turned into a $4 billion deficit. In the meantime, tolls continue to rise every year. Joining us to talk about his findings is Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale. General, thank you for joining us today. 
Thanks, Scott. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, you have so many audits that uh, I could talk to you about a lot of different things uh, since this one was released just two weeks ago. But we'll right. focus on the turnpike since so many people uh, do drive the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and uh, it's part of their daily commute in a lot of ways. Right. By the way, if you have a question or a comment for the Auditor General, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Those numbers sound stark. How would you characterize the finances of the Pennsylvania Turnpike at this time? Um, bad and getting worse. Um, and, and look, the Turnpike is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but this one is not on them. Um, and look, uh, when the tolling of I-80 was rejected by the federal government, whether people thought that was a good idea or not, and certainly in a, in a democracy, that's a fair debate, um, but once it was rejected, whether you like the idea of tolling Interstate 80 or not as a way to help fund improvements to I-80, other roads, and fund public transportation, once that was rejected, um, it became pretty clear that that uh, Act 44 needed to be um, immediately fixed, and it wasn't. And every day that goes by that it is not fixed, um, the the challenges for the turnpike get steeper and steeper. Well, just for background purposes, uh, because this was nine years ago, uh, part of the deal was that Interstate 80 would be told. The Fed said no, that uh, it couldn't be done because unless the money would be used strictly for I-80. Right, but e even if that be the case, if it would have passed in that form, the, the turnpike still would have been contributing uh, $400, $450 million, wouldn't they have? Correct, but there would have been a revenue stream from the tolling of Interstate 80. Once that revenue, I mean, the whole payment from the turnpike for these uh, public transportation projects on the state across the state was hinging on the idea of there being a revenue stream from the tolling of I-80. So once that went away, then there was no revenue stream to pay for it. So it's so that's why they keep increasing the tolls on 76, um, in a sense, to pay for that. And I just think they're getting close to the breaking point on that. Well, let's go to that breaking point. Is there the possibility the Pennsylvania Turnpike could go bankrupt? I would say it is possible, unlikely in the next couple of years, but possible. And here's where it becomes possible. There's going to they are hinging over the next, you know, seven, eight years, increasing tolls by about fifty-three uh, percent. The only way that they're able to meet that number of increased tolls and keep making their debt payments is by their own model increasing traffic on the turnpike by about 44 percent if they keep increasing the tolls and what i believe is going to happen is you're going to actually get less traffic not more then it will be extremely challenging for them to meet their debt obligations and if that happens they go bankrupt did your audit look at the number of vehicles traveling the turnpike today and if so is there a trend there have we seen an increase since 2007 there has been, up until about 2008, 2009, an increase. But we have seen over the last roughly five years a leveling off. That's what we've seen in our audit. And do you know the reason for that is because of the increased tolls year after year? Uh, at this point, it would be just a guess. I would think that's certainly part of it. Maybe you could argue the economy. Other factors, look, truckers today are, are very sophisticated. Uh, they have computers in their trucks today. This isn't just... You know, um, uh, some man or some woman guessing what's the best way to go. Um, they have the computer models dictate um, what is the cheapest way to go. Um, that includes travel time, gas costs, tolling, et cetera. And so as the tolls continue to go up, 
maybe the speed that they're getting able to get across 76 becomes less valuable than the cost, and so maybe they're taking back roads, maybe they're taking 80 and coming back down, whole host of reasons, without doing a sophisticated um, poll of the people that commute on the turnpike, which we just don't have the ability to do. It's hard to come up with the exact reasons, but it's hard for me to imagine the increased tolls not being part of that. You know, I, I really don't, I don't know whether any good comes of talking about the history of this, but I will anyway, because it has had an influence on where we are today. And you were in the House in, in 2007, right? right? That, that's correct. I, yeah. I almost got the sense at the time that the turnpike agreed to this to stop Governor Rendell from leasing the turnpike. Would you agree with that? The turnpike was, and it was an odd situation. Um, the governor came out with the idea of leasing the turnpike. I think it was to a Spanish company, and there was a lot of public reaction across the political spectrum against it. And I don't think there was any way the Pennsylvania legislature, I, you know, myself included, would have gone along and approved that at the time. Um, the turnpike was very much against it. And it was sort of this odd circumstance that you basically had the majority, even people that Governor Rendell appointed to the turnpike and people, the staff that he had put in place there, um, were pushing back against that plan vigorously. It is certainly possible, although I was not in any meeting where any, any of that was said, but it is not beyond the stretch of belief to think, okay, we'll go along with this because maybe it'll get the leasing option off the table. That is, you know, a guess, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you it didn't happen either, because it certainly is a reasonable um, guess based on the circumstances of the time. General, you talked about uh, some of the estimates with uh, vehicles and that kind of thing. I even remember thinking at the time in 2007 that this couldn't work in the long run because the turnpike was giving up too much money. How did anyone really think that it would work? I mean, you mentioned that there were estimates of how much traffic would increase. Right. I mean, was it all based on that? Well, I I think yes. And also, I think a lot of people viewed at the time that 80 was you know, you had a lot of trucks moving across 80 that were coming in from Ohio, going into New York. It's really the only stretch of 80 that isn't a toll road. And there was a um, so there was a belief that there would be a lot of revenue generated from that. I think even now, when you look back on it historically, even if there was tolling on 80, I think some of those projections were rosy. But certainly without the tolling of 80, um, they become um completely uh, insane, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. One of uh, the findings of your audit, and this just blows my mind, that of the Turnpike's $980 million budget, $600 million will go toward debt. That's incredible. I think it's, it is a staggering number, and I don't see any short-term way that that gets anything other than worse because, um, look, uh, here, here's the situation. You're going to need – part of the problem, and I think it's important to take a step back on this issue, funding of public transportation in Pennsylvania, because we have what I view as a transportation system of roads, you know, back roads, um, suburban roads, highways, and public transit uh, and rail in Pennsylvania. It's all part of our transportation system. What I think is important to realize stepping back is that we have never found a viable way to fund public transportation as part of that. And so thinking that the legislature is going to find a, a solution to that along with the governor anytime soon, I think is unrealistic, which means this debt is going to keep piling up. Well, I want to go back to what you just said. But before I do, uh, that's six hundred million dollars in debt. Who is that owed to? What is that debt for? 
it is borrowing that the turnpike itself has has done bond issues for. So for their own infrastructure. So when you see um, the bridges being repaired or the highways being lengthened, anything along the, uh, along those lines, that is, you know, they have borrowed for that, and now they're paying that back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's what you're that's what you're seeing the borrowing for. Mm-hmm. So. That would leave $380 million, okay, if we just put aside money that has been borrowed for this, this, these projects. You know, it, it raises the question, how is this road being maintained? How are they paying employees? How are they paying their bills with $380 million out of a $980 million budget? Well, uh, through increased tolls. Um, look, that's, that's – and, and you're raising – Sort of, you're asking the question that there is no real answer, and I don't mean that to be funny about it. There's no real answer because they can only keep doing this for so much longer. Mm. Now, I want to go back to what you had uh, addressed before. You know, I think that we got a sense of security, if you will, in Pennsylvania a few years ago when the legislature passed and Governor Corbett uh, signed legislation that increased the gas tax and, uh, you know, the number of fees that were increased, that that we were told that, you know, this was going to take care of our, our transportation needs. So, but part of that, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, but part of that was 400, that $450 million come from the turnpike, Right. Yeah, well, what happened as part of that transportation deal, and I don't have all those details in front of me, but they did lower um, – the Senate had passed a bill that would lower almost immediately the $450 million payment to $50 million from the turnpike. The House passed version, which ended up becoming the one Governor Corbett signed into law, it's about 2023 when that reduction actually takes place. But there was no, – one of the weaknesses of that bill – and look, I think that you know that bill is – you know in large part why you see a lot of road construction across Pennsylvania, one of the weaknesses of that package was that public transportation was not addressed in it. Mm. And that's what the money from the turnpike goes for, correct? Correct. Yeah. And, you know, because, and I, w- I want to point this out, that uh, uh, that bill is viewed almost universally as a success here in Pennsylvania because uh, we had such infrastructure needs and uh, so many transportation needs. Although, and this is a topic for another show, we have found out recently that a lot of that money is going to pay uh, for rural municipalities that uh, are contracting with the state police for their protection. But again, that is another another program. Um, You mentioned that the the tolls keep uh, going up. Uh, I mean, did you do any kind of uh, uh, calculations on how much money would be needed from tolls to offset the bills that the Turnpike has? Well, here's here's what I want to say. Their own model is correct on the increased tolls if they're correct about the vehicle, the number of vehicles that travel on the Turnpike. What we are saying is, or at least what I'm saying in, in, in my analysis of that is, that's unrealistic. But they're not lying. If you increase vehicle traffic 44% and increase the tolls 53%, the numbers work out, right? I mean, that, that their math is correct on that. The part where I draw issue with, and I think they, quite frankly, would have think we have a fair point on this, is we don't think they're going to meet the 44% increased traffic. Um, I don't think they're going to come anywhere close to that. But their numbers are accurate. They're not making that up. If you increase the tolls 53% and vehicle traffic increases 44%, they'll be able to keep making the payments. We just don't think that's realistic. 
Uh, General, we have an email here from Tom and Carlisle, and uh, this was something else that you addressed in your audit. How much does the Turnpike lose by Easy Pass scoff laws? Uh, People who drive through Easy Pass without a transponder. Yeah, we the average turns out to be about twenty million. You know, you break it between eleven and thirty. It turns out, you know, we'll call it for argument's sake about twenty million a year. We are one of the few states in the country that does not allow the turnpike or even PennDOT for that matter in, in other circumstances to really um uh in a sense hammer people that are breaking the law. Um so what happens is the people that are riding the turnpike, whether easy pass or still using cash, um, they are in a sense subsidizing people that are blowing through the easy pass. So, I don't know. I just I, maybe I'm being I'm an honest person. I never would have thought of that of blowing through the easy pass. Uh, it, I feel guilty talking about it because every now and then someone will go, Eugene, why are you talking about that on the air? Now you're letting people know they can get away with it. I I don't know what to do about it other than if I didn't talk about it. The legislature won't fix it, and clearly at least twenty million people, twenty million dollars worth of people figured it out. But you're right; it's not something that I would have ever thought about. And there was one time where. There was an issue um, where my Easy Pass didn't work, and, and I ended up, you know, sending the money in. Um, but that was just a, a glitch in the system. The idea that you wouldn't pay it is literally, to me, something I would never even consider. But clearly, there are people out there that either a know it or b figured it out. I'm I'm, I'm glad you paid that because that would have been a scandal, you know. <laughs> that's that's correct. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mention that because I. I uh, I know of a friend who was in New Jersey going to the shore that uh, I, for some reason, uh, you know, she actually had the easy pass and, and, it, and it worked, but somehow a mistake was made and she got a letter from New Jersey saying that, uh, you know, you're expected to pay this because you blew through one of our easy pass things. So apparently New Jersey is one of those states that's following up. Do we need legislation in this state for that? There actually is legislation that's been introduced in the Senate on this subject, and so I think the to me it's not even a debatable point. If you want to correct that, the people blowing through it and not being forced to pay that up, yes, legislation is needed. And there's actually a bill in the Senate that would address it. It's bipartisan, and I'm hopeful that I know the public transportation issue is not going to get addressed this fall. I'm hopeful at least that piece of this that the audit has raised can be addressed because to me that's legislatively speaking, this is a layup. So just so I'm clear on this, does this mean that uh, when we're, the money is not being collected, do we know when people have gone through uh, Easy Pass without paying? I mean, are there photographs? Yes. There are photographs of the license plate, yes. So we know who the people are, but we're not doing anything about collecting it? They mail them a letter, but if you don't do anything, Pennsylvania is one of the few states, if you just get the letter thrown in the garbage can, nothing happens. In other states, when you go to get your license renewed or your vehicle registration renewed, they tack the bill on top of it or you can't get your vehicle registration renewed. Hmm. Yeah, that would seem to be something that would pass the legislature pretty uh, pretty easily, I would think. If they uh, owe, uh, an owe another 50 bucks because you blew through the easy pass a couple times, what what have you, and then you go get your driver's license renewed, they say, okay, uh, 50 bucks easy pass gets added on to onto your bill. Uh, you don't pay that, you don't get your license. You know, people are going to pay it. Yeah, and I can hear the first first answer. That's, that wasn't me. I don't remember that. Another thing you, uh, you brought up was uh, toll-free travel. Uh, and this is by a lot of people who are connected with the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Is this that big of a deal? Is the state losing that much money because there are people connected to the Turnpike that are not paying uh, tolls? It is not. In, uh, in the grand scheme of the Turnpike's financial problems, this is at the bottom of the list. I just believe that it sh- there should be more focus on. I am appreciative, 
appreciative of the people that are working for the turnpike if they're traveling on it for work-related purposes, not making them pay the toll. But if they are, uh, if they just, um, if they're not for work-related purposes, I think they should pay it. How do you uh, separate the two? Well, and that's where uh, you know we have sort of, in a sense, put that on the lead or on the turnpike to have a better system to figure that out. And we think there is a way to do it because other states have done it as well. Um, but. There's not even an attempt to do it right now. Mm. Uh, so, General De Pasquale, what are you recommending? What, uh, as the result of this audit, what are you recommending? The legislature to immediately pass um, legislation to give real teeth for when people blow through the easy pass, and then, uh, and I would say it should be done immediately. But I know it's not going to be done this fall in a bipartisan way. Work with the governor on a fair plan to fund public transit in Pennsylvania that makes sense financially and both make sure that our state has a vibrant public transit system. And then once that passes at the same time, immediately eliminate the 450 that goes from the turnpike to PennDOT. As you mentioned earlier, that $450 million gets reduced to $50 million in the year 2023. Uh, if it would be eliminated today, that money, that $450 million goes for public transit, and as you said, something has to be done for public transit. If it went away right now, what would happen to public transit in Pennsylvania? You would have, um, you well, each public transit agency would then have to start cutting back on routes um, and raising fares immediately. So it would create a real problem. Yeah, what, in a sense, you'd have increased traffic, less people able to get to work less people are able to get to school. Uh, there, were, there would be ramifications um, significantly across the state. And that is not just a Philly or Pittsburgh issue, by the way. This public transit dollars goes through every single section of Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, even s some of the more rural areas of, of Pennsylvania uh, have public transit systems, and uh, there are a lot of people that count on those uh, public transit systems uh, to, uh, to to get to work. We have an email here uh, asking, if the turnpike is only losing $20 million a year, isn't it a drop in the bucket when running a $5 billion gap? Well, it, it is not their biggest problem. The 450 is a much bigger problem, but still, um, I think getting that $20 million from people that are breaking the law is an appropriate thing to do. You said this earlier, General, that uh, you're on the Turnpike Commission side on this one, that uh, uh, you understand the situation they're in. Have you heard from the Turnpike as a result of this audit? And uh, is there any, you know, the Turnpike working with legislators or working with you or just what? Broadly speaking, the Turnpike agreed with our audit. Um, you know, some minor differences, but I'd say broadly speaking, they, they agreed with it. And we do know, again, that the legislature in the Senate side of it has a bill that has been introduced. Obviously, they haven't come back from their summer break um, to address the scoff law issue. Now, how quickly that starts to move, you know, I, I don't know. But I do know that that legislation has been introduced with feedback from the Turnpike Commission. Hmm. Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me, and thanks for helping raise awareness on this issue. It's a big one. Thank you very much. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, well, you're probably aware that uh, Ron Howard, Director Ron Howard, uh, just released a film last week called Eight Days a Week about the Beatles. Uh, a while back, we talked with Larry Kane, a Philadelphia broadcasting icon uh, who traveled with the Beatles during their 64 tour. He wrote a book about uh, his, his travels with the Beatles. Uh, have that conversation tomorrow. Also talk about the latest poll in Pennsylvania. <laughs>